0: Hi, I'm Amode Lele, hosting New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm going to be talking to Maria Heim about her new book, The Forerunner of All Things Buddhaghosa on Mind, Intention, and Agency. Buddhaghosa is perhaps the most important thinker in Theravada Buddhism after the Buddha himself, and wrote an extraordinarily wide corpus of works, commentarial and otherwise. Creating much of how we understand Theravada Buddhism today. Maria Heim is one of the first to actually examine Buddhaghosa's work as a whole, looking at that vast corpus of work and teasing out its themes, focusing in particular in this book on the themes of mind and intention and agency in a way that I think challenges many Western understandings of moral psychology, because in the West, we tend to focus on choice and decision as the units of ethics. What is the way we make a good or a bad decision on a particular action? And Budagosa has a psychological and ethical perspective that questions this approach. So please join me. In learning more. Today we're talking to Maria Heim about her new book, *The Forerunner of All Things*. Hi, Maria. Hi, Emode. I've, I've read the book. I can recommend it highly. I especially like the the depth that you bring to examining uh, Buddhaghosa's key terms. It's I, the the book's a very detailed account of a rich and I think understudied thinker, the Buddhagosa's... The, redactor of the the Pali Canon as we know it now, um, I've, who I've heard described as you know, Mr. Theravada Buddhism. Um, so, before we get into talking about the book, uh, Maria, could you begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure, and let me just say, Amode, that I really appreciate you having me in the series. It's a really nice opportunity to talk about my work. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, I. Um, I got my, I, I guess, my intellectual start uh, in college. I was a student at Reed College in Oregon, and I'm from the West. Um, generally, I was born in Colorado. And um, at Reed, I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to study with Edwin Giroux, who is a quite well-known Uh, Sanskritist and scholar of Indian aesthetics who had spent most of his career at Chicago but um, as he was uh, moving towards retirement he spent a few years at Reed and I was able to take his courses in Sanskrit and also he taught a lot of courses in Indian knowledge systems and I took everything he offered and just sort of fell in love with um, Indian ways of thinking and so, um, I guess I, I wound up writing my undergraduate thesis um, on Buddhist philosophy. I was quite interested in Chandrakirti and Nagarjuna and that type of stuff back then. Um, and I went straight from Reed then to Harvard um, in the PhD program in Sanskrit and Indian Studies um, and continued to work, uh, rather broadly in classical Indian systems of knowledge. Um, I went originally to work with Professor, um, Nagatomi, um, but drifted more towards Charlie Hallisey's direction and became quite interested in, um, Polly. Um, but I, as a graduate student, I continued, um, I have a kind of deep interest that I've never been able to shake in Shastra, um. But I've also studied Jainism um, with some depth. Um, so I've always been sort of interested in the connections and the confluences of these different traditions, um, even as I've gone more deeply into the Pali tradition ever since graduate school. Um, so, yeah, I guess that, that gives a sense of where I'm coming from and something of my training.
0: Good. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I think I could, there were points where I could thought I could see uh, Charlie Hal's influence mm-hmm. there there in the book um, maybe first why don't you tell us a bit about Buddhaghosa?
1: Mm. well Buddhaghosa, um, as you say is mr. Theravada right he is he has just uh, second to the Buddha his stature in the tradition of the Pali Ther- Theravada tradition is um, unequaled Um there's a great deal of material that is um, attributed to him by the tradition of which of course, modern scholars don't accept all of it as being his. Um, so it was some interesting kind of questions there, but he of course was the chief um, redactor and and uh, translator and editor of an existing earlier body of commentarial material that, Written in Sinhala, or by the time he came to it, it was in ancient Sinhala, and he translated that back, and or likely a team of scholars working under him translated that into Pali, um, at the behest of his teachers and the authorities at the Mahavihara and, um monastery in Sri Lanka in the fifth century. And he's also the author of his own work, the Vasudhimaga, which is a very large um, text. Um, there's much overlap actually with the Vasudhimaga and much of that commentarial material. Um, but he's a very, very systematic thinker, somebody who um, is organizing the Buddhist path as, he, as it came to him, as he inherited it, into a very structured um, path. And, um, despite being as huge as he is in terms of that role of both producing his own work, but then, you know, uh, giving us the commentaries as we have them or having an important role in, uh, the commentaries as we have them today, he is surprisingly not studied, um, as much as we might imagine. Of course, in Buddhist studies, a lot of these really important figures, uh, are, are, known about, um, everyone values them, but the actual, um, decades of work, working with one particular figure in this range of uh, texts is often, uh, not something widely practiced. So, um, I've learned a lot about Buddhaghosa, of course, from Charlie, um, and I've learned a lot from his courses and from conversations with him. Um, but there aren't a lot of other scholars I've been able to, um, to draw on for kind of the, the kind of deep questions I've had about Buddhaghosa's project so in some ways it's it's um, it's you know it's, things felt wide open in this project of trying to figure out what is he what is he up to and what is he trying to do and how can he reshape our questions
0: Right now, how, so how did you kind of come to be to that topic i mean it, it sort of seems like the kind of topic that you know once you once you've sort of settled on it that it sort of seems obvious, yeah, somebody needs to write on this this is, has not been done how How did you sort of find your way you
1: know? to this yeah, and good question so. Yeah, I mean, I think at the most basic level, you know, I'm fascinated with questions of human motivation, intention, why people do what they do, and also how we represent how people do what they do and how we think about those questions of intention. Um, and that's a question that's been me, with me for a long time. Um, and so it seems, You know, I think in an early stage of the project, it sort of fixed on this kind of well-known passage from the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha says that karma is intention or Chaitana is the critical word here. And um, so narrowly construed, the project began with that, that what on earth is Chaitana? Do we even understand what? was meant by intention when we decide that or when the buddha claims that karma is that intention so it began in that way um, in trying to figure out you know what became pretty clear is that and you know what that chaitana stands for it's a whole set of processes right um psychological processes that undergird action um, I knew from the beginning, though, that I wanted to look at a number of different genres. I had a sense that this was a question of what intention meant in a more broad sense was answered differently in the Vinaya than it would be in the suttas or the Abhidhamma, um, and that the questions of intention looked different in narrative literature. So I knew I was going to kind of look at this in different discursive contexts. Um, I also knew I was going to be looking at both canonical and commentarial layers. I've always liked uh commentary i don't want to say more than common than canonical sources <laughs> um that seems you know but but i really i i really enjoy the depth and the psychological intricacy of poly commentaries um so i knew that it was going to have both of those layers and it was only gradually that buddha came to really occupy central stage in the way that he does in the book mm. um, and that's for a couple of reasons one is that just because of this very complex and intricate uh, psychological nuance that the commentarial s- sources sort of bring to the questions I was asking, um, they fill in gaps they ask a lot of questions about what things mean they offer a larger apparatus for understanding it um, but then i I also, as I tried to talk about in the introduction I it became more and more influenced by Buddhaghosa's own methods with texts, hmm. his own ways of reading canonical sources. Um, so I began to see him not just as somebody glossing terms that I had to understand or something like that, or helping me understand a particular sutta, but rather, um, and this came out of reading kind of his introduction um, to the main pitikas that he is attributed with, you know, how he talks about genre, how he talks about discourse, how he talks about the different registers of the Buddhist speech, what he thinks intellectual methods are. And so I began to really be guided by him in, in terms of my questions. Um, and, um, the more I ceded kind of methodological ground to him or learned to sort of follow him around the text, the more interesting things got, um, for me in any case. Um, so the canonical sources are always there in the text, but I, do try to foreground what Buddhaghosa is showing me about them and how to read them. And I do try to foreground his own systematic way of interpreting um, questions of moral agency. Um, but that was a gradual uh, thing. It wasn't something I knew I was going to do going into it.
0: Right. Really, it, it started with intention and moved to Buddhaghosa. Yeah, exactly. Right. Is there is there a way in which you could say that um in a sense even the canonical texts are Buddhaghosa's work as well? Since it seems like he's sort of attributed as the redactor of the, the canon. I mean obviously he didn't write them, but
1: Right. Well he's not the redactor of the canon as such. Um okay so you know what he's describing is he doesn't describe having any involvement in the canon right he you know so the questions of you know how the canon got to be to him um what those historical processes are something that of course pretty interesting and very complicated but he's not um he doesn't have that role with the canonical sources as such okay
0: okay yeah um yeah so that then the question of the redaction of the canon would take us sort of further away. Um, but maybe I want to foreground that question of intention that is so, or of Chaitanya specifically, that is so central to, to your book. I I can sit, sort of see that question of, of what is Chaitanya really takes up kind of every chapter in, in, a, in a sense. Um, but I'm wondering if it's possible for you to actually give an answer to the question, what is ch- Shaitana
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's a, that's nicely put. It is a complicated thing. So the takeaway message of it is 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 com- complex and intricate in the um, the way that it's discussed in the suttas and the Abhidhamma. So the way my book is organized is I have a chapter f- for each of the genres that I look at. So the, the three right. genres um are the pitikas, the suttas, the Abhidhamma, and the vinaya, but I have a fourth chapter that treats the um, narrative literature and the jataka and the dhammapada commentaries. And, um, partly, again, following Buddhaghosa, he, he names that almost as a fourth genre, a fourth pariyaya, a fourth way of knowing. Um, so, you know, he recognized it as its distinct kind of inquiry. Um, so, in any case, that's the kind of structure of the book. And, and, and as far as how the suttas and the Abhidhamma talk about Chaitanā, which is where Chaitanya is really addressed directly. It's a technical term. Um, they see it as one within the larger Abhidhamma structure, a um, or at least a, to the sutta commentaries and the Abhidhamma commentaries as a one of the very rudimentary processes that's present in every conscious moment that is putting together and constructing our experience. So in terms of the factors or the phenomena or the dhammas or the cetasikas that comprise our experience um, in the Abhidhamma system, Chaitana is one of five that are always present. And the way that Buddhaghosa talks about Chaitana's function is that it's it is the constructive um activity, the part of our psychology that puts together other um, chaitasikas, other, other dhammas, other pheno- mental phenomena, galvanizes them to their work and produces karma, produces action. So, it's a technical, complicated answer. Um, you know, it's not, what it isn't is it's not the sovereign will, right? It's right. not a decision or a choice or the process of rational deliberation. It's not an executive function in this. Um, it's a rudimentary or elementary function of organizing and exerting other phenomena, momentary phenomena in our experience to construct the world of experience, which is in fact karma, the construction of action. Um, it's talked a lot about in terms of the sankaras. Right. In these sources, so that Sankara, um, the volitional formations of the constructions that comprise one of the five aggregates or one of the links of the 12-fold links of dependent origination, which is a very crucial idea, that too is the constructed processes of um, temperament motivation, disposition um, that are, is producing our experience every moment. Um, what's key in it I think is that both Chaitana and Sankaras are themselves highly conditioned, right, by other processes of mind, by previous karma, even as they are the dynamic, constructive qualities of action, right, so something I get at in the book by referring to patiency, our experience of our moral agency is is being um, shaped by previous causes and conditions. Um, but also, ag- it's agentive. Okay. But it's okay. also agentive at the same time in terms of being sort of constructing, right, present and future experience. So, both of those are present. Sorry, Amod, I cut you off there. Oh, no, I... I-
0: Was basically wanting to say how I found the the term "patiency" really interesting because you know when you think about it, the the terms that we the 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 opposites that we have for terms like action and agency in English are are they've kind they kind of do other work you know if you go back to Latin roots like it's hard it would be hard to say that passion is the opposite of action or that patience is the opposite of, of agency, um, you know, or,
1: or passivity or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Passive is the opposite. Exactly. That, that those, those all have their own connotations that are not, um, necessarily really, um, opposed to agency in, in the kind of grammatical way that, that the, the terms agents, agency and patiency would be
1: yeah and again, I should say I got that notion of patiency from Charlie hal right yeah, He's right. been very sensitive to this um this part of the moral life um, so yeah, so that you know so it's a complicated answer it's not a simple answer, and I think that's why this is some of these ideas have not been um have been looked at as closely as they might have sh- or should have been or have not right. had the impact that they they might have as we think about what um ethical agency looks like in Buddhist sources.
0: Right. And, and then, so with, with all of that be behind it, then you you translate Chetna as intention. Um, so can you say a bit more about, you know, what how you came to the choice to take that, you know, five-minute answer and compress it into that word?
1: Yeah, right. Well, I have a long section in which I talk about, you know, what are our available options? And I don't think it's something like the will. Um, because of, I find that's a term that's heavily freighted with Augustine's kind of, you know, the notion of the will as this kind of robust faculty. Right. Um, it's, volition is, I think, still connected to the will, um, in this way. I think it's a perfectly viable candidate for how we might translate Chaitanya. Um, but I think intention worked well for me in the sense that for a couple of reasons. One, um, it, you know, intention is, um, always connected with an action, right? In a way that, say, motivation doesn't connect, you know, you can know, have the motivation for, um, for, you know, motivation can be a desire for something, but the, it's not the same thing that the action is. So there's a kind of very close link to intention and, and action that I think is also there in the Pali with, with Chaitanya and Kama. Um, I, I have some sense of, of, you know, this other philosophical or phenomenological sense of intention or intentionality. I don't want it, what I, what this material to be entirely conflated with that or anything right. like that. But I think this notion that, um, all conscious experience is connected or directed at an object is important in some link to what's hmm. meant by chetana. That chetana is always about how we fashion the object of experience. Um, and th- they see that as a very constructive process. So that is there to some extent for me in the translation as, chaten- as intention. Um, but I you know, I, I guess what I, I tried to show in my introduction is that no matter what we do, right, it's not going to be, the English sure. terms yeah, aren't yeah. going to work very well. And all we can try to do is to understand the English history of the terms we're using and the right. possible resonances that they have. and And then just kind of in a sort of wary and careful way. Um, you know, um, you know, sort of yeah. just use these. We have to translate something, right?
0: Right. No, the the English words that we have are never good enough. But we have to yeah. use something if we're going to talk about it in English at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And then, and so you know, this kind of gets us into um the where you go in, in the introduction about the history of intention in the West. Um. And well, what sort of intrigues me is um sort of the, the way that, that you take the book as kind of recentering things. Can you say a bit more about how that history of intention might start to change if we started to think with Buddhaghosa, what that might look like?
1: Right. Well, I think what I'm trying to show in the book as a whole is that the notion of um, – of autonomous agency um, or the sort of that ethics is a matter simply of making choices and that we can always are capable of sort of standing back as an autonomous agent and rationally deliberate and come up with our choices, which is the dominant paradigm, I think, right. in Western ethics for how we would even think about what uh, ethics is about. I don't think that works very well for the Buddhist sources. And my book is an effort to try to explain why. Um, you know, I, there's nothing like that notion of choice in the Pali sources that I've looked at. Um, it's, it's not operative in the Abhidhamma. And it's interesting and that's important for us to understand why that is. Um Instead, what I think we can look for the Buddhist sources to is a very complex, finely grained and intricate moral psychology or moral phenomenology, um, at which they're really interested in parsing, uh, at a pretty fine level, uh, the nature of moral experience. Um, and that is a different kind of resource that we could look to, um, than kind of, uh, dilemma, dilemma based ethical reasoning or, um, you know, ideas that somehow has to have to center ethical um, deliberation around this. What I think is a fiction, actually, this notion of the autonomous, uh, free, sovereign will, right? That, right. that makes sure. You know, I, I just think that I think that that's actually um, my own experience. That's not how human beings are like. And I think Buddha is a. It's very, very foreign idea to um, to the Buddhist sources that I've looked at.
0: Right. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, constructively and normatively, you, you think that the, at least to some extent, Buddhaghosa gets it right, whereas, uh, Western ethics to date has most often typically got it wrong. Is, is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he's got it right in every, um, in every way or anything like that, but I, I do think I, I appreciate this, um, this looking under the hood of what goes on underneath our choices in a way that uh, that, you know, and it's not that it's not present in the Western traditions, right? I, I've been always really interested in the British moral sense theorists, right? For the kind of work that they do on the moral sentiments, very richly psychological thinking about what goes into human moral experience. So, um for me, Buddhaghosa offers you know, and the whole abhidharma tradition offer uh a really complex and interesting psychology to understand how we work um that's that's richer than just a desire and reasons based notion of intention um, or that assumes just a kind of pure rational agency or something like that
0: right so if Western ethics were to take that up, what would what might that look like if, if you know, if if we were to to have a conception of ethics now that thought a bit more with Buddhagosa and was less focused on the agent's choices and decisions? How might how might that work?
1: Well, um, I mean, there's you know um I suppose I guess i 'm interested in moral psychology, right so I think i don 't know if people are going to stop doing ethical theory in the, the way that they have this seems to presume this notion of of choice at the heart of it. but I think there is work going on in 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 moral psychology in the West, and the cognitive i think some of the cognitive science and the philosophy of um, of cognitive science is also getting at some of these you know that we have to understand it deeper more. Um, empirical understanding of what human beings are actually like on which we might begin to predicate some of our ethical theories. And again, I, you know, this is present in the Western tradition. If you look at, you know, even Kant, who we kind of hold up as, you know, the, Foremost promoter of free, autonomous, rational agency. He actually also wrote about empirical um, human anthropology. Right? right. You know, practical what are people anthropology. practical anthropology? What are we actually like? Right? What are the limitations and possibilities on on us as ethical agents? So there is this tradition um, that's in the West. It just you know it, it isn't always what makes its way into. Um, a lot of our ways of thinking. what's striking for me about it, as I say in the book, is that why is that tradition that emphasizes the kind of autonomous choices? Why is that the tradition or the principal lens through which people have looked at Buddhist ethics? Um, when in fact, Buddhist, you know, it, or at least Buddhaghosa. I don't like to say a lot about Buddhist ethics as a whole, but at sure. least Buddhaghosa and many of our other resources. I think Shanti Deva, as you know too, I think is, um, you know, really trying to do something quite different. Um, so I do have things I tried to say in the book about that. Um, that I don't know if these constructive projects to, to, you know, often very holistic in terms of how they're carried out uh, to to construct Buddhist ethics according to Western ethical theories, are um, are the way to go.
0: Right. I mean, does that maybe speak a bit to uh, that controversial claim of Damien Kuen's that there's no such thing as Buddhist ethics? Um, you know that have you have you, have you seen the the articles where he where he sort of said that in recent recently that that he describes Buddhism as, as morality without ethics because it doesn't he, he find he doesn't find any sort of systematic ethical reasoning. Um, I,
1: yeah, I, I haven't read his recent work, but I mean here was somebody who at an earlier stage of his career was quite keen to describe in a holistic way Buddhist Buddhist ethics as, you know, as a kind of whole system as virtue ethics, um, you know, and so I, virtue theory, right? So, I, you know, I don't know that, um, so it's, you know, it sounds like he's changed his thinking on some of that, but, um, I mean, I you know, just, of course, it all just depends on how you're defining ethics. If you exactly. p- include moral psychology and the study of emotions and the study of motivations and the study of uh, kinds of things that my book's interested in, well, if you can count that in, in, in your definition of what ethics, the concerns of ethics might be, it's all over the place. But we have to go in with somewhat different questions. And for me, the way to deal with it was to actually allow Buddhaghosa to shape my questions and his mm-hmm. systems and his paradigms ground up to shape shape what, I'm inter- what, what I wanted to look at and how to think about this um, rather than bringing a Western theory to the Buddhist sources and make them speak to it um, so you know I think you know that's at least one kind of way forward yeah
0: um, and so I'm you know, just trying to sort of think through you know if we were going to teach uh, uh, an ethics 101 course that was you know, framed around Buddhaghosa's questions um rather rather than around you know Rawls's or or Judith Johnson's or whatever um you know what what might that look like, especially if it was to a an audience of you know modern secular ish students
1: sure well um you know again, I think um it has to be shaped by The genres of the texts that we have, and we have to study genre and reading practices more carefully than we often do. Um, You know what I think narrative literature is a very useful resource for thinking about deep philosophical questions about morality and agency. Right, as I've tried to do a little bit in my chapter. The Vinaya is a you know somewhat unique and interesting way of approaching moral questions. you know abhidhamma is not studied that much even by graduate students in american buddhist studies programs but abhidhamma is really for the at least for the theravada tradition is really at the core of what you would have to understand before you could responsibly do buddhist studies or understand buddhism um Which is something that was really important for me is because I hadn't studied it until I wrote this book and I spent an awful lot of time just trying to figure out what on earth is this, how to understand it. And it's not, I don't think it's widely taught um, in our institutions, but everything changes after you've studied Abhidhamma systematically. Um,
0: How, How would you say it changes?
1: Uh, well, according to the, according to Buddhaghosa, and I think it's also in the Melinda Panha that, that you should, they always say you should study Abhidhamma first, because after you've studied Abhidhamma, you have an answer to every question, mm. which I think is, is an interesting claim, but it, what it gives you is structures, um, in which you can locate questions of doctrine, you can locate all sorts of things, right, and produce answers. Now, those answers often look kind of dry and uninteresting, but on reading Abhidhamma was Buddhaghosa, what you see is the, what the Abhidhamma is is just a series of methods. It's a series of analytical methods all the way down mm-hmm. that give you the tools to analyze and dismantle and recategorize experience and all of its dynamic, complex interactions. So if ethics was about, let's try to figure out what our experience is and what it could be capable of, then Abhidhamma would provide a tool, one kind of tool to do that kind of analysis and do that kind of careful searching through what human beings what, what goes on with us psychologically. So, you know, again, that's just a, a ground up different way of doing things, but um, I think those are the type of resources that if one wanted to teach such a class, one would one could draw on. So,
0: I mean, I'm just sort of Trying to, to envision, you know, uh, uh, an eighteen year old woman coming into a huh. uh, uh, an, an ethics class with no prior huh. background in in Buddhism, and you know, not necessarily even actually reading Abhidhamma texts. That would probably be pretty ambitious. But um, but you know, having having a course that would that would lead them through that would lead her through thinking a, a thinking you know, analyzing experience in that way. You know, wondering you know what. What kind you know what kinds of conclusions might she come to if she took that seriously what um, how might she be different after that class is over
1: um, well, I do think that these are different methods that, like any intellectual method that we train our students in, create certain kinds of critical skills, um, learning how to function in the world of Abhidhamma is a certain kind of critical exercise. Um, whether that has a great deal of relevance for the modern world, I don't know. Um, I do think learning how to read narratives is, uh, in complicated ways, is something a lot of us are doing in all of our classes anyways. Narratives have great philosophical potential um, in terms of making questions of, of how to live very um, rich and complicated. Um, I think narratives also, as I talk about in the book, they also work on us, right? They create certain kinds of sensitivities. Um, that I like. I teach that type of stuff in my classes a lot. I like to see what happens with 18-year-olds who are grappling with challenging stories and the time frames that they suggest and um, and the kinds of... um, um just sort of complicated human beings that narratives often give us access to. Um, so, you know, and I think um, another important thing that we want our students to understand is how institutions work, how traditions, how culture works on us as moral agents, as, um, as people always working within a setting. And you could say the monastic rules, if you understand how that works, right? Um, what they say about what they do, how they inflect and influence and shape people even prior to moral decisions um, is a kind of knowledge we should have as you teach our teacher, young people, right? How do institutions, the Vinaya is just one institution. There are other institutions that are acting on us all the time. How do we develop the questions to, and the, the, the ways of even seeing how those things in, influence us? So these are not, you know, I don't know if we want to call that ethics, right? Maybe not. I, I, I think I have a pretty wide idea of what ethics might be. Um, questions about how to live very broadly and how to ask those questions well. But I think, you know, we have to, if you want to do something like that with Buddhism, we have to deal with the sources that we have, right? right. Um, and what they can teach us about them and how they might need to give us entirely new critical skills that we don't have. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we might want to go to Buddhist sources is not just to see our own methods reflected back at us, or our own theoretical systems reflected back at us, but rather to learn totally different ones or ones that um, they can shape, reshape our thinking at, at a, at a, at a more fundamental level. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that, I would begin to try to formulate an answer sort of like that if, right. if I were to be thinking of um, what sort of Buddhist contributions or Buddhaghosa's contributions might be to to ethics.
0: Right. I mean, it sounds like in, in a sense the contributions could probably go well beyond ethics or you know, anything we think about as, as ethics. I, mean, I, I notice I, – to take it back to the, the book, I, I notice in, in the intro when you're talking about the history of intention, again, there, there's um, – you go into kind of legal theories of intention and psychological theories of intention, you know, that, that, this sort of interdisciplinary approach to it. Um, and I, I wonder if you think, excuse me, I wonder if you think there might be any um, implications of considering mm-hmm. Buddhaghosa's thought on intention in, in those kinds of realms uh, of love law or psychology or other things that are not considered traditionally part of ethics in the West.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, have much more to say about that other than what I suggested in the cha- the chapter on the Vinaya and then the chapter on the narrative stuff. I do see, um, you know, the Vinaya is a kind of legalistic realm of of thinking, um, and uh, you know, it's it's trying to get at really complicated questions sometimes of consent, of intention, of motivation, um, in ways that are. Really pretty layered and thoughtful. Um, I don't know if they, that would help, you know, a legal scholar in some other domain, but as a kind of sophisticated legalistic reasoning, I think the Vinaya offers that. Um, you know, some of the stuff on the sexual stuff that's in the Vinaya is really interesting in terms of how they're trying to configure consent. And this is a, obviously a really important and urgent question for our own context. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think that the questions they were grappling with and the modes that they were grappling in are, are instructive for us in terms of thinking with subtlety about those sorts of things. Um, in terms of the, the narrative chapter, I'm really interested in the kind of the social questions of how People represent other people's intentions, right? Mm-hmm. So the narrative question, the narrative chapter, was a way I was trying to get at that, right? For what purposes and by whom are people's intentions represented in the ways that they are? So in the narrative chapter, I was really interested in how, even deciding what an action is or what an intention is, is selecting out from a field of experience. Uh, something based on a particular perspective and a particular agenda, um, even naming what goes on in a, in an action is already constructed by the narrative setting in which it, it happens. Alastair McIntyre has a, an example of this in which he says, you know, we can say a man is gardening and it looks like we've named the action, but... You could talk about that self-same action in lots of different ways. What is he doing? Is he taking exercise? Is he pleasing his wife? Is he growing food for the family? Is he decorating the outside of the house, right? Okay. What is the action there? What is the the intention that seems to be present? Well, it depends on who's naming it, right? It depends on the whole narrative setting in which it's taking place. And those are, as I argue in the book, are socially constructed, narratively, dialogically constructed um, you know processes um, and I look a little bit at some of the social psychology literature on this um, and so where what I'm trying to trace in the narrative chapter is you know how are uh, there's a lot of stories in which somebody will do something and then you have this particular group of bystander monks who will say why did right. they do that and then, fortunately, the, the omniscient narrator of the Buddha is always ready at hand and he'll say, well, folks, you know, there's a whole reason why this happened and it usually has something to do with their previous life. Um, and so, the temporal aspects of constructing what the action was and why it happened or the intention behind it come to be extremely important, either they are in this present life reenacting or continuing to um, per- perpetrate actions that have long been embedded in their story in the past, or whether this is a moment of transformation, right, from a long history of certain kinds of actions and patterns of actions. Uh, so, the past bears down in, in the interpretability of actions in the sources in a really strong way, but also the future. The Buddha will begin, he has access to the future. So, he'll say, well, this moment, the, the reason they did this, this is the beginning of something new or something different for them. And he's interpreting action, present action, always, often, in, uh, in terms of its future trajectory. Right? So, the temporal aspects of even identifying what an action is are important um the stories also give us access to a world in which people are deeply embedded with and entangled with particular others and that i try to talk about right so that what is an action it's usually a reaction to something that somebody else has done to the, the character in the story and these these patterns of Actions and reactions stretch across lifetimes um, in a way that the stories almost deliberately seem to make us make it hard for us to put our finger on what is the mo- this, this, the moment of intention that got this person in trouble or the moment of action because in fact it's a long sequence of action and reaction and that to me too seems to be getting at some kind of truth and how we how we work in the world right. Um, we're always responding and reacting and, you know, there's never just this purely isolated moment of choice outside of the narrative context that can const- construct what it is.
0: Yeah. And I, I liked that, that part in the, in the book very much about the, the past stories about how you sort of, Take the, this kind of uh, of device, you know, so, something that often kind of seems tacked on in the the Jataka stories, where it's like, you know, at, at, at the end, the Buddha is like, oh, you know, by the way, I was the rabbit and right. <laughs> the turtle. Um, yeah, and I like how you sort of think through the the kind of implications of that, and a, a, as a way that that is actually important for our ethical reasoning. Um, in in that it, it's sort of making people understand that it's really important to look at the deeper reasons why other people are doing what they're doing, right? Which is not necessarily a way that immunizes them from criticism, but, but is still so, but it's still sort of, you know, say, saying like, well, there, there are reasons why they did what they did in, in a way that doesn't even necessarily require rebirth, although that's the way that it's phrased in the book or I'm not, well, I don't mean the book in, in the, the canon and the commentary. Sure. Yeah. Um, but that, uh, um, you know, just, just sort of, you know, the, the, the kind of things of like, oh well, you know that that person is is doing this because of the abuse that they received as a child, or or, or whatever. You know that that that's something that that's important.
1: That's right, to in life. and it and it's in the Vinaya too. So I paid a lot of attention to um, the narrative context in which Vinaya infractions occur, um, so that they aren't necessarily the some of the narrative details around. Um, or the background details around a narrative, around a Vinaya infraction are not necessarily relevant for the legal decision of culpability, right? It, that seems like a lot of times the texts are not interested in the motives or the reasons why somebody committed an action. They're just interested whether or not it was intentional or deliberate. But I argue the texts, both Buddhaghosa and the canonical Vinaya narratives, um, in which the rules take place are richly complex about the reasons and the motivations people have for why they commit the infractions they do. And I, I think that that's because these are texts that are being used for kind of very, um, something was very important to them in terms of establishing a kind of or developing a moral education or a, a sensitivity to the complexity of human behavior. So you could look at Sudina, for example, who is the guy who broke the, the vow of celibacy um, in, and basically started the whole need for rules um, so that he, he committed an action that then became, you know, by breaking the vow of celibacy came to be um, cause for expulsion from the, from the sangha. And the way his, his story is treated is enormously sensitively by both the Vinaya itself and Buddhaghosa's, or if Buddhaghosa was the author of the commentary in the by the commentary very sensitive so they go into all this background detail about how Sudina didn't want to have sex with his wife right. his former wife at all he didn't want anything to do with it um, but he did because his poor family it was catastrophic for them that he had left them um, without an heir um, and then Buddhaghosa goes into all sorts of very tender um, details around that about how this encounter occurs where Sudena goes back to the family after he's been a monk for a long time and, um, and first they don't recognize him, but once they do, the parents' very tender ways of trying to bring him back into their house, and the question comes up, why did he go back into their house? And it's because, you know, and the answer is that because Sudina felt he owed them something, and, you know, it is very, very compassionate treatment of somebody who broke this monastic rule. The Buddha himself is very harsh on Sudina, right? He's very, very clear that this is a, a violation of a extreme importance and that no uncertain terms that he's guilty but the narrative details around it would suggest that you know which Budigosa didn't have to do that Vinaya itself didn't have to to embellish this to make us feel sympathy for this guy and for his family that I think is part of a, a larger moral education that is happening um, to help Vinaya experts have a more sensitive reading and compassionate reading of human affairs um, so I'm really interested in how stories do that, right? How they, you know, they take us into the particularities. And that's something Buddha goes, this is over and over again, that the Buddha's omniscient knowledge reached into the particularities of human experience. And by knowing how these things come to light, we get a much more compassionate, much more deeper understanding of, of human beings, which I think is what a lot of these sources are, are trying to get at.
0: Sure. Yeah, I I, th- I think that that's um and that and that's something really kind of valuable that we that we get out of it. Um then maybe turning in a in a slightly different direction, um one of the, the themes that I, I noticed notice sort comes up that where where I think you're um you know critical of some of the literature on Buddhist ethics again that you're in, in dialogue with is this point that that uh Buddhaghosa's injunctions on action um, when he's given kind of concrete guidance on what to do, are really more about what not to do. Right? That, mm-hmm. that they're phrased very much negatively, mm-hmm. um, and it, that almost seems to get you to endorsing um, what Kuen calls the the transcendency thesis that the the Arahad is is beyond good and bad karma. Um, could you say a bit more about about that and sort of how? It um whether you think that that you know people have been kind of too hesitant to acknowledge that negativity
1: yeah, I guess i so I would put it somewhat differently, but I guess you know where that came out is I just kept noticing that. Everywhere you turn, good actions or good intentions are actually abstentions or refraining from doing something. So that, you know, we have in elaborate detail the ten wrong actions. And then he turns to what are the ten good actions? Well, they're abstaining from the ten wrong actions, right? Sila is the five precepts, not doing five things right um, so much of the ways like the, even the noble path how that's described is often in the language of, of you know getting rid of things not doing certain practices not doing things so it just seemed both psychologically but even at the way the actions are being described over and over again we have the idea that refraining from action abstaining abandoning certain kinds of mental experiences is the path Um and that, to me, I, I didn't know where to turn in the secondary scholarship about how to think about that question. So I just sort of, I don't know that I've got made any real progress on this point, but I, I do give it a name. I talk about it in the book as presence of absences, that there are right. certain absences, getting rid of things, abandonings, are that are actual sort of things to get, <laughs> you know, so we just don't have a very good language for this, but, you know, are actual conditions to be aimed at, right? Um Lack of remorse is a condition that makes other things happen, right? And a lot of this, the the sources are talking about um, how to achieve something like the lack of remorse. So um, you know, in terms of the the transcend, trans, you know, I do we look at that question about. If is karma, you know, and that we have sources that say, you know, karma that is neither black nor white, right, right. is the kind of karma to be aimed at. And it's pretty clear Buddhaghosa has this whole notion that, that arhats are beyond karma, um, and good and bad karma, right, however conceived. So I do think, I mean, it just my sources seem to suggest that I don't you know, agree with Keone on his, his worry about that. Um, you know, I've got this all sketched out in the book, but yeah, I mean, uh, you wind up with a really interesting arhat, right? In terms of trying to figure out what that what that kind of agency looks like, um, they do develop a term for this. You know, arhats have kiriya karma and kiriya intentions. This particular technical term that names the kind of intentionality that they have that is fruitless and it's not itself the fruit of other processes. Um, But that's just the flip side, the logical flip side of the whole notion of Chetana as constructed and constructing experience all of the time. Um, So to me, it's consistent um, as it's coming through in the sources. Uh, But I know it's not the popular view in terms of modern scholarship.
0: I I, (laughs) I wonder, do do you think that maybe the, the reason modern scholarship is reluctant to embrace that view is just because we live in, in a socially activist kind of age. Um, you know, I I mean what's sort of the thing that I was kind of thinking is as I was reading it, you know, in, in terms of the way that Buddhaghosa explains the concept of kusala, the sort of closest thing he has to a word that translates as good um and, and looks lists some of the different meanings. The only one that really seems to have anything like we might consider uh, a moral meaning is is anavaja or blameless. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um and that and you know, again, that is expressed in those very kind of negative terms uh-huh. uh, of, of what of what you have not done. and, and it right. really seems like there is there is a sense where what is valued is is, a, is kind of inaction and and the things that 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 you don't do and that that seems to at least have a tenor that is, is very different from um a common kind of idea that that well you know the 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 more that you can the, the more that you can go out and and change things and and give to charities and and uh recycle and and so on um
1: <laughs> yeah that's true. Um, it's It's less satisfying in that sense. But I, I do think, you know, the world would be a much better place if people would just stop, right? All the, <laughs> the bad things that they're doing, right? And, right. It's, you know, what I think that these Buddhist ideas are is that so much else can happen when you stop, right? And when you just get rid of this bad stuff, right? And then, these, then your way of... Operating the world can be open to acting in a spontaneous way, right? I don't think you become completely passive. I don't. I don't see a passivity in this, but I do think there is something to consider. And and, what would it be? Simply to stop um, all of these, you know, the ten immoral actions, and Mm -hmm. you know, to actually practice the precepts. I think that that is it's worth looking at and and considering it. you know, I wonder, too, if some of the Mahayana polemics around this issue have distorted our vision about for its possibilities with the Theravada sources. But um, that's a question that I haven't fleshed out.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, um, it's, it seemed like a persuasive reading to me based on what I've seen of the Pali Canon, not only the Pali Canon, but also some of the… Um, Works in a comparable context. You know, thinking about you know, as you mentioned, you know, you've studied Jainism. Um, hmm, you know, yeah, not, you know what what you see and say that the Tathwarta Sutra seems hmm. um, to to be in a similar kind of tenor, or, or for that matter, the the Yoga Sutras. You know,
1: mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, text.
0: it's very much the you know the the ideal is is about a kaivalya, transcendental aloneness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you know that I think that makes. People today a, a little uncomfortable. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. But it, it seems to have really been the the ideal, Aaron. And, and I, I like what you're saying about you know, well, what what if we actually think with that and think you know, what what would it be if people would just stop <laughs> stop all doing the, the bad things? Yeah, yeah. So um, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, but uh, I want to ask before we before we finish up. Um, what are you working on now?
1: Um, okay, yeah. I've, I've tried to move on from The Forerunner, right? Mm-hmm. Get involved in some different projects. I'm actually working on two books simultaneously, which I don't particularly recommend, but it just sort of happened yeah. that way.
0: Right.
1: Um, the first is something I've been planning to do even before I finished Forerunner, which was to work on emotions. Um, but I wanted to get out, away from this really tight focus on Buddhaghosa I've had for a long time. Um, and so it's a it's a, I'm still fashioning the methodology, but I'm trying to develop a methodology to look at the ways that particular emotions are treated and thematized and discussed in different classical Indian knowledge systems. So I'm looking at medical texts and aesthetic texts and religious oh, texts wow. and literary texts. But I've I've written two chapters. One is on happiness um, and the other is on disgust um, and sort of, you know, proceeding by always looking at two texts together. Um, mm-hmm. So the disgust is looking actually at Buddhaghosa and um, Bharata's rasa theory, on, which right, discussed right. is an important um, experience. And yeah. and then the happiness chapter is looking at the Pali Canon suit, the Pali suttas together with the Upanishads around what the questions mm-hmm. of happiness and pleasure and bliss and what that whole territory looks like. Um, so I was kind of sailing away on that. And then I realized I, I actually had another book in me that just had to come sort of pouring out. And that does go, just <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> is a weird experience, but it, I'd been something I've been trying to deal with in articles. Um, but then I just realized I have to write it into a book. And that comes right out of the forerunner stuff that, as you know, from reading it, I'm really interested in interpretive practice and reading practices and what Buddhaghosa can teach us about that. And so I have just, a lot to say, a lot more to say about that than I was able to say in the forerunner. So, it's a book about. It's called "Well-Spoken Words: How the Buddha Taught," um, mm. and it's Buddhagosa's uh, ways of reading what Buddhavatana is, mm. um, and you know the various claims about vachana um, Often, we take them to be sort of just encomiums of praises of the Buddha or praises of the Buddha, but for him, we're actually interpretive tools. So we say, you know, the Buddha often said that the Buddha's words are um, perfect in meaning and phrasing, right? That's not just a nice praise. That's actually, for Buddhaghosa, it became a task. How do you take any particular utterance or any particular sutta or any particular text and and understand how it's perfect in the way it's phrased and how it's perfect in meaning. Um, and so it's a book about the practices he engages with with texts, his own theory of texts, how he uses different registers, how he interprets different registers of speech, um, the questions of Samiti speech and para, uh, paramata speech. Um, um, it's a book, one of the big themes in it is um, that the Buddha's words are said to be immeasurable. Hmm. Um, And this goes back to his own buddhology that the Buddha is omniscient. Um, So he actually takes that to be a really important interpretive practice that if the Buddha's words are immeasurable, um, then how do we begin to interpret how a finite utterance, something that just takes up, you know, a certain amount of time or a certain amount of, pages how is that communicating something immeasurable Uh, this becomes really consequential for how he's interpreting what Abhidhamma is for example or how he's interpreting what narratives are so I just discovered I had a huge amount to say on these points and it was just going to take a whole other book to do it but it's it's coming very quickly and um, I hope it will be a kind of contribution to thinking about questions of hermeneutics questions of interpretation but also continuing this um this investigation but it goes so that, that I seem to have karmically wound up with <laughs> right
0: yeah you knew him closely in a former life or something? I guess
1: so I don't <laughs> right. uh, you
0: know, that, that those both sound like great projects I look forward to, to seeing what, what happens on each of them um, so I want to thank you for being on the show today I uh, really enjoyed this I hope you have as well uh, take care
1: I have thank you very much i
0: You've been listening to an interview with Maria Haim about her book, The Forerunner of All Things, on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Amode Lele.